Art of the Cut is brought to you by Evercast. Evercast is the first real-time collaboration platform built for creatives by creatives with video conferencing and HD live streaming in one web-based platform. Stay tuned for a special offer later in the show. Art of the Cut is also brought to you by Frame.io, a leading collaboration platform for filmmakers. Hello and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. Today we're talking with the editing team of Zack Snyder's Justice League. These editors are David Brenner, ACE, Dodie Dorn, ACE, and Carlos Castillon. David Brenner edited the original Justice League in 2017 and is currently editing Avatar 2. I previously interviewed him on Art of the Cut for Batman vs. Superman. He won an Oscar for Born on the Fourth of July, and he's also edited Transformers Age of Extinction, Man of Steel, 300, Pirates of the Caribbean, and Independence Day, among others, so he's made a nice little name for himself in small indie films. Dodie Dorn was nominated for an Oscar and an Ace Eddie for Memento. She's also edited Fury and the Terminator 2 Judgment Day Director's Cut and Kingdom of Heaven, among others. I last interviewed her for Art of the Cut when she edited Power Rangers, and she's currently editing Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead. Carlos Castillon has been an assistant editor on some of the biggest films ever made. Iron Man, Iron Man 2, Cowboys and Aliens, Man of Steel, 300, and Batman vs. Superman, among many others. He was an editor on Zack Snyder's Justice League and is currently working with Doty as first assistant on Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead. Carlos was the only person that was there throughout the entire post-production of Justice League after David moved on to Avatar and before Doty came on. So each has a unique perspective on the editing of this epic film. If you could introduce yourselves, because of course the people that are listening to this won't know who the voices are. So ladies first, of course. Oh, wow. Okay. Hi, uh, Dodie Dorn here, additional editor on Zack Snyder's Justice League. David Brenner here. Hi, this is Carlos. Tell me a little bit about putting this group together. How did each one of you get involved? Obviously, you were on the previous ones. They probably wanted some, Carlos, they wanted some continuity. Um... I had been working with Zach a couple months after he left the movie. We kind of pieced together a cut that David had made, kind of a, a longer version, what we were calling at the time the ultimate cut, um, kind of the same thing that he and Zach did on Batman Superman, which they had worked on. In this case, they did it. A little earlier on, they set up two cuts uh, rather than doing it kind of later at the time. And so we took what was the ultimate cut and then kind of expanded it, uh, Zach and I, you know, just the two of us working on an avid in his in his house. And then that was kind of the genesis of the Snyder cut. It was originally just meant for him to have a copy of his idea of the movie just for himself and to, you know, show it to his friends or whatever. And then it it ended up just kind of uh, living in that way, and and uh, and it, it ultimately HBO Max jumped in to finish it off, and they did the visual effects, and now it's it's out um, in the, for the world to see. See, from the beginning, he knew that if things had turned out like Batman versus Superman, that there would be a theatrical cut, but that he would end up having. A longer cut and that he would get you know funding to do that because he got decent funding to do the long cut of batman versus superman and he, and the studio made a lot of money from that so 
when we wrapped photography and we sat down, we saw the editor's first cut, which was a, over four hours. It was, I think it was like four hours and 40 minutes. Wasn't it, Carlos? Something like that? I think, yeah, it was like 4.30 maybe. It was, yeah. it was, it was, it was one of those things you see these long assemblies and you know in the back of your mind, if this movie is going to be two and a half hours, there's a lot to do. But what Zach said is he said something that was really daunting to me at first. He said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to sit down and we're going to think of three cuts. We're going to think of the A cut, which is going to be what I would really like in the movie, my cut, not thinking about length. And then we would have a B cut, which would be what we're going to show the studio the first time, which is going to be something like realistically, we know that we can't show them something really over three hours. We want to, and we talked about a length. We want to maybe get to 245. I think 245 was what we wanted to try to strive for in that. And then the third idea was a C cut, which was kind of like a worst case scenario, which was like in the event that we have to end up really fighting with the studio and coming to something that's way shorter than two and a half hours, than 220, then these are ideas that we're going to have so that we've already thought of it. As we went through the, the first cut, we would come to a scene and he would say, oh, what about this pattern? We would experiment with things. We would delve into daily sometimes. We would do what you normally do when you're working with a director and you would refine it. So what we were refining at the beginning, in my mind, was the A cut. We were making his cut. But then as we came to, to, to things to lift out, there was a decision to make. Zach, do you want to lift this out and save it for your A cut? Or do you want to lift this out and put it on the cutting room floor? That was when we realized we had to kind of really do two things. Because when you're editing, you know, you're always chasing a deadline, of course. And our deadline was the day that we'd have to show it to the studio, which was the B cut. So we realized we were working on the B cut. And, and when we would come up with a lift that he wanted for his long cut, we would, I would put it into a bin, I think, and, and label it. So cut to 10 weeks later, or, or probably 12 weeks or whatever it was, we had our, our B cut, which was, I think it was about 245, or was it three, Carlos, what we ended up showing the studio? What we ended up showing the studio was close to three. It was like 250. And that was his, like, you know, the first cut that he presented to the studio. That is what the B cut became. So once we did that and we got the notes from the studio, we, we, we realized that the studio wasn't interested in something that was this length at all. And it became quickly apparent that we were going to have to open the notes and look at that C cut. That's when things got really rough because I think Zach knew that it could be done, but that he felt that it would be a harmful thing to the movie. I mean, if you think about, about it, you know, you have two origin stories that you have to introduce in this movie, cyborgs and flashes. Batman had been, you know, Batman, Wonder Woman and Superman had been in introduced, but you have, you have those to tell and you have the story of the Justice League coming together. And the last film, Batman versus Superman, I think it was about 220 in theaters, the, the original cut. Christopher Nolan said something interesting to us. He said, when I was doing the Batman trilogy, I allowed myself to add 10 minutes to every film so that Batman Begins was, I think, 220, Dark Knight was 230, and Dark Knight Rises was 240. And he said to Zach, I think you should allow yourself that. So we were like, okay, if we take Christopher Nolan's advice, and he's a smart, successful director, 
we feel like this story should be told in more like two and a half hours or a little longer. The idea about getting this to two hours we know was de detrimental. But we played the game as one always does with the studio and tried things, tried this, tried that. And then one day there was the idea from the studio that maybe a writer should be hired to write, I think it was two to three scenes, just to inject some humor, I think it was, into the first part of the movie. So Zach was like, cool, all right, because he's always open to the best idea in the room. So the studio came up with a list of a handful of two or three writers, and we screened it for them. And one of them was Joss Whedon. And that's the only one of two times I ever saw him. And then they all went, went away to make their notes. Around that time, I think, is when the tragedy happened in Zach's life and he lost his daughter, Autumn. He was gone for a couple of weeks and would come back now and then. And the studio fight was still there. And it was something that he and Debbie, his producer and wife, after a while, you know, as, as, as you probably read all about, they realized that their energies needed to be at home with the family and to try to fight the studio fight was something that it was best for them not, not to do. Zach stepped off when he did. I said to him, I said, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to stay? Do you want me to go? And he said, I want you to stay because I think that you're, I, I, I want you to stay. I want Junkie to, to Tom Hochlenberg, the composer to stay. I want everybody to stay because I want the best influence on this movie to, to be there. I did. I said, you know, I talked to the studio and I said, why don't you let me right now just finish what we were doing, which is try to get to where you want to, to, to go. And so while I started to do that, Zach said to me, you know, what's my cut really? And, and it became really clear to me that he was talking about the A cut. If you go back to what I was first talking about when we started the cutting. So that's what I started doing. I started putting that back together. I started building that into, I, I, in, we called it, what do we call it? The ZSU, the ultimate. Yeah, the ultimate. Zack so Snyder it was, ultimate, yeah. So it was a variation of the A cut. And pretty soon, you know, the, the studio said, you know, your services are no longer needed because the, they were hiring a new editing team. And I had another few weeks to put that together and I put it together and I left. And that's when Carlos t takes the story. After you left, then we continued working on this cut. And this is after we've finished the theatrical version and we had a little more time, I started working with Zach on kind of restoring his version. So we were taking the assets we had available to us at the time, which was the finished theatrical version. We started pulling stems, we started pulling some visual effects. A lot of the visual effects kind of changed the story significantly in the theatrical version. So we couldn't use a whole lot of those visual effects, but the stuff that we could use was all locked into this 185 framing which also was a challenge because Zach originally shot the movie in 133 and he always intended to do a 185 cut for the theatrical kind of uh, traditional version and then have the full IMAX, the entire movie live in a four by three for the IMAX release. But when Joss took over, the IMAX version was abandoned for time and money. And so they they just did the 185. So that meant a lot of the shots were not finished top and bottom. So then we came up with the 166 idea so that it can be a little bit wider, but not open up the full four by three square of the frame. 
we kind of put it together. We, we made some tweaks here and there. We added a bunch of stuff back in that wasn't even in David's cut. We, we added the chapters and, and broke everything up. And then we realized it was still, the color was not great because it was all dailies. It was uncolored stuff. So that's when we got resolve on the system. And then um, I just kind of went in and taught myself how to use it. Worked with uh, Rich Molina, an assistant that David and I have both worked with. And he kind of gave me pointers on how to use Resolve because he had used it. And then that we did a, a black and white pass. And that was made uh, basically to just hide all the bad pumps and unfinished VFX and green screens and Cyborg that uh, Ray Fisher's character is in pajamas the whole movie. So obviously in Zach's version, we didn't have a lot of comps with him. So it just, by turning everything into black and white, it just kind of made all that stuff kind of go away. That's how the movie was presented to the studio in black and white and unfinished VFX. You know, it's still a compelling enough story that obviously they agree and they did it. He never showed his cut to an audience until Zack Snyder's Justice League. So yeah. after we had showed it to the studio, there's that moment where the, you know, even a friends and family where you, where you have that opportunity. He, he never had that. So after I left and the, the A cut or the ZSU, whatever, which became the Snyder cut, it just existed and no one had seen it except for a handful of people, the studio and his friends. And Zach liked to call that he a, a unicorn. He said he was going to let it just live as a unicorn that nobody ever sees. It was not called that at the point, right? I mean, now it was just known as what Carlos the had, cut, yeah, the Snyder cut, and then Dodie and Carlos come in and make yeah, it. Yeah, there's it is. a lot of a lot of uh, history in the wings about Zach's fans who were not pleased with the theatrical release, and they were confused actually and thought this can't possibly be a Zack Snyder movie. It was super colorful and jocular and. <laughs> weird looking VFX and Zach's known for his amazing visual style. And it has always been known that he's sort of more on the darker side, not leaning into a Marvel-esque. So those fans were already confused. And then, I mean, Carlos, you can fill in some of these blanks, but it seems as though that they took up the banner for Zach to, to release the Snyder Cut and the, that hashtag then existed, released the Snyder Cut, and there were a lot of efforts from those fans to get that to happen. Right. So now it's just on somebody's laptop. How does it become a movie that, that I just watched twice now on TV? In November, when HBO Max was launched, they reconvened with Zach and Debbie. And the finer points of all that are in tons of Debbie and Zach interviews, but they decided to go forward with it and come May of last year, Carlos spent, how, how long did you spend? Like three or four weeks restoring the project onto the Avid. And then I started to work on it and we, they brought in a pretty hefty VFX team and the, you know, we had to make the decisions about whether it was going to be 133 or 166 and that was a financial issue and we landed on 133 and then we worked for the ensuing months to polish it up and finish it, including some additional photography. So did you ever have to edit in a different aspect ratio? Because I would think that would change the timings of edits when things go off the screen, left or right or top or bottom. Nearly all of the VFX were revisited. So we were constantly adjusting ins and outs on everything for various reasons. Plus, 
the refinement of all the action scenes was happening too. So Zach and DJ uh, Desjarnet, the VFX supervisor, they have a special language and they were constantly spitballing and figuring out ways to make the action more exciting. So all of those scenes were tweaked. Is there still a question of feel at this length of when you need to be at a certain point in the movie? Do you still say, hey, we need to be at one hour or 40 minutes or something. We need to have the Justice League assembled or we need to, when are we going to finally see Wonder Woman? You know, We never had those kind of discussions. There was very little restructuring done. If anything, we were just adding more back in because I think as Warner Brothers said and stated that it was a cul-de-sac and there weren't going to be any more movies, I, I felt, or at least not with Zach, I think he felt, well, I'm just going to put in what I feel belongs in here. And we also were originally doing this for a four-part rollout. And for some contractual reasons, it had to be rolled out all at once. So we weren't concerning ourselves with length at the beginning at all. For instance, if Zach, if the studio said, okay, Zach, you can release your, your cut in a, in a theater, you know, if this were before COVID and if, if, or if, if this were during our original experience, he wouldn't have wanted to do a four hour and 10 minute movie. I don't believe, you know, I'm 99% because when you're in a theater, as we all know, your expectations, the audience expectations are much different than when you're streaming something at home and you can pause it, you can come back to it. So I think those kind of considerations, Steve, came up more when, when we were working on the B cut. And if he had strived to make a cut that was 245 or even three hours, even three hours, I think those questions still would have been questions on our mind because you're doing it for audience that are, are sitting down in a theater in one sitting. Let's talk about then the idea that it happens in so many films of keeping storylines and characters alive. I'm assuming that that is still a sense of pace and rhythm of the story that still exists. Did you feel like, hey, it's time to get back to Wonder Woman. It's time to get back to Aquaman. Not, not really, honestly. I mean, we were, I was already dealing with a pretty well-formed story from through uh, David and Carlos. And, uh, and we were on a fast track to finish. We, when I came on in May, we went through everything with a fine tooth comb, including adding some more little bits in and knowing that we were going to shoot some more uh, scenes. And then we had to lock the picture in September. So I started in May and lock in September, including doing all the VFX evaluations and spinning those plates. And we locked in September. So it was a pretty short timeline for something of that girth, if you will. <laughs> so you and David never worked together? Nope. Wow. But like I have said before, we talked about this, he's... His breadcrumbs were very easy to follow. <laughs> That's nice to hear. So there was no different script for this other than maybe the, the writing, David, that you were talking about. That was something the studio wanted to do. And that became what was in the theaters, the Joss Whedon version. So, so that had nothing to do with it. Although I, although I think that there was some development in the, um, in the Steppenwolf story and some new dialogue was, was, was written Right, Dodie? Yeah, yes. Those scenes were all reworked and we rewrote the dialogue. Zach rewrote the dialogue. We recorded it, it with editing room voices, mostly Zach and Carlos. 
And then we fleshed out those scenes and then we had to go and do remote ADR with the, with those characters so that the animation for the VFX could be done appropriately with the right, you know, lip sync. And then also adding in the a Martian Manhunter in the middle of the movie with, with Martha and adding in the Joker scene was written, obviously, then the last scene with Martian Manhunter, Zach had wanted it to be Green Lantern, but that was not going to happen. So we did, that scene was rewritten. There was, had been a version of it shot in the original shoot, but I'm talking about the one where Bruce wakes up and goes out to the patio, but the other side of the character was never shot. And so they just reshot the whole thing. God, I kind of smiled when you were talking about Steppenwolf being voiced because that was one of my questions. Did you ever get to scratch track Steppenwolf Doty? Yeah, I didn't do it. I uh, make it a point to never do editing room recordings. They're always... She, she, she made me do it. So yeah. I had to suffer through. Yeah. I mean, the, I, I, one of the things I was really blown away by at the very beginning was the casting of Steppenwolf and Desaad because they were these fantastic Shakespearean English actors. And, and I remember just watching the scenes in motion capture and facial capture. And I, and I was like, this is gripping. Like I could watch this because it is Shakespearean. It's kings and quests for power and wanting to be accepted and all, all this great stuff that I don't think ended up in the other version. I just remember being blown away by it. And it only got better. It only got more interesting and more complex because Zach wanted a villain that was complex. He wanted a villain who looked more alien, but whose emotions were more human in a way, because what the studio wanted was a, a Steppenwolf that was a little bit less scary and had a face that was looked more human, but who ended up being a little bit more arch. W would you say that's true, Dodie? Yeah, absolutely. We really worked on giving complexity and backstory to Steppenwolf that made him almost sympathetic. And there are a couple of scenes and shots where he looks like he's on the verge of tears. It's a kind of another daddy story where he wants to please his uncle, Dasad, and he is, keeps begging to go back to the home planet. And it's like, no, you have to work harder until you do this, this or this. You can't come home. And to me, I love that because I love being able to identify with the bad guy. And I think Zach clearly wanted that. Yeah, I just watched that scene where he says, you got to go back and destroy another 50,000 worlds before you come home. And he does look hurt. That hurt reaction was always there at the beginning. It was, I remember it was something that the actor did and it was like, this, this look on his face was, was so, you know, to us, like 50,000 worlds, it's, 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 and to him, it's doable, but it's like, how long is that going to take? Talk to me about that motion capture, because it's an interesting idea that also happens in animation editing that you, did you cut with the actual motion capture for a while? Yeah, that's all we had. I mean, it would be a close up of his face. What I would do at the time, because that's all I had was I would sometimes have a split screen of the, the previous and then his face. So the, the, the previous shows us what the environment's going to look like and what the characters in a very rough way are going to look like. And the faces show the emotion of the actor. So um, it's quite useful, mm -hmm. but it's strange because the, the, the way the face rigs are is the, the camera is mounted onto your body. And so it's a very wide angle lens. It's almost like a fisheye. And when you move, 
it's 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 moving with you. So it's it's sometimes disconcerting to watch. You have to get used to it. Yeah, we always have to keep that facial capture, that motion capture in in the picture, like in a picture in picture so that they can be constantly checking the sink. I mean, that is like, you know, a little laborious, but we did a funny motion capture for Martian Manhunter. When we recorded his ADR, they came in and they just put dots on his face while he was recording his ADR. It was kind of cute. Very um, low rent is what I would call it, (laughs) but it worked fine. We'll be back in a moment with more of my conversation with David Brenner, Dodie Dorn, and Carlos Castillon. Today's episode of the Art of the Cut podcast is brought to you by Evercast. It's hard to beat the ease of sitting shoulder to shoulder with the director cutting together in real time. The Evercast platform gives you that in-person experience no matter where you are. You can securely stream your Avid, Premiere, or any other NLE in 1080p with ultra-low latency. Plus, you can video chat, record, draw on the screen, and even make timestamp notes. No more uploading or downloading files, no more installing special hardware or sending notes back and forth. Evercast now offers flexible plans to make it accessible to more creatives. And in the month of March, Art of the Cut listeners can save $50 off their first subscription by heading to evercast.us slash AOTC. That's E-V-E-R-C-A-S-T dot U-S slash A-O-T-C. Today's episode of Art of the Cut is also brought to you by Frame.io. Now that remote workflows are the new normal, filmmakers need a better way to collaborate with their teams and clients. Frame.io keeps editors, directors, producers, and DPs connected no matter where they are in the world. You can shoot in London, cut in New York City, and review in L.A., all at the same time before production even wraps. Frame.io's cloud-based platform helps you work at lightning speed, and their industry-leading security keeps your team and your assets safe. Head over to Frame.io to start your free trial today. And now back to my conversation with David Brenner, Dodie Dorn, and Carlos Castillon. How do you manage screenings when it's this length? Because that's just a long time to sit and watch something. So we didn't have really any screenings. We All, all we did was we showed a few of the producers and those were done at Zach's screening room at home. And if it was only a couple of people, they had an opportunity to stop the, this was even before we inserted the, there's an intermission for theatrical. We just had the parts. So it's six parts, a prologue and, a, and an epilogue. And there are some obvious places to stop and it was very casual. So we didn't have formal screenings. We had a few sort of tech check screenings at the studio and we had, yeah, we, we had a couple. We screen it for the studio. Yeah, but they stopped, uh, right? Yeah. They just, they, it was only studio people. So they stopped whenever they wanted. Yeah. Yeah, but four hours was a long time to set aside, especially doing like QCs. I think my record in one day was I QC'd three passes at company three, um, and then a few reels at IMAX. So I started at 6 a.m. and ended at like 9 p.m. And it was all MOS at company three. So it's like, okay, drink a lot of coffee and stay awake. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. That's crazy. Uh, So we've talked a little bit about the VFX that needed to be done. What about score and temp score? Because you know, you've got music that was created for the original theatrical screening. Did you use any of that as you were trying to create the ZSU or whatever we're going to call it? I mean, I used, you know, I obviously I used music from Man of Steel for Clark's theme. And, 
use Batman versus Superman for Batman. And we also went into the library that I had built to do the temps for those films because I, you know, I realized that just different scenes have different needs. Oh, and we also used the Wonder Woman theme, which Hans created for Batman versus Superman. But we went into a lot of the stuff that I had used to kind of inspire our, our then music editor to, to come up with our temps. What we ended up showing the studio was a mixture of music from the first two films and other stuff from temp. And then we had our, then, then we started developing a score while we were still cutting from Tom Holkenberg. He, he would give us demos and sketches and we started to work those into the cut. I don't know if they were in what we showed the studio the first time. I don't think that they would, would be. But anyway, that score ended up not existing at all in what you saw on HBO Max. Tom wrote a whole new score. Yeah, we had some temp pieces in the in the Snyder Cut, uh, some pieces that Tom had put together. And so we were using some of it, but a lot of it, you know, it was just other pieces from other scores and stuff. And like David said, everything was just built together. And then Tom wanted to restart from scratch. So he, he did. I mean, he, we didn't have much time, but I, I feel like the turnaround was incredibly quick right Dodie like yeah we were we were using David's temp score which included all the things he was describing I didn't have time to go in and rework any of it we had two music editors on who were amazing and one of them Catherine Wilson was getting us so Tom it was just a monumental task and I think he went through and worked sort of thematically with different, because we had two major recording sessions in London, one relatively early and one later on in, I think, November or December. It is true. It's nearly four hours of music. I'd say it's probably three and a half hours of music. And he went through thematically, would create these huge suites. She would, that he would do in his studio with his team, then she would sculpt it to individual scenes that would get turned over to the orchestrator, obviously, and then they would record all of that. I would check in on the recording sessions by Zoom, and they were doing a lot of stuff that was like a toolkit so that he had other things to, to work with because the picture was still changing. And then he would score it in those themes. And then she would, well, when they were doing the sketches, she would turn it into something that we we had in the in the cut. And then big he just he motored through the whole thing. It was pretty amazing. I was in awe. And I love the score. I love it. There, there were a few source pieces that by source pieces, I mean song score. One of them was in the, the first Flash scene, which I had found this piece by an 80s band called This Mortal Coil. And it stayed in, the, in that scene for a long time until, until the studio thought it was too heavy and wanted us to, and too weird. I think they said it's too emo. So we wanted to <laughs> we're trying to find others, but Zach went back to that and then, but it was re-recorded by somebody which I thought was a great, it was a great cover. I thought it was really good. The, the other two pieces that were originally song score were in Old Bailey, which was the, Wonder, the first Wonder Woman scene. But for whatever reason, Zach decided to score that. And the third one was 
help Carlos. It was in my mind. Uh, the, the pier, the walk on the pier. Yeah, the yeah. walk on the pier. Yeah, yeah thank yeah, you. And oh yeah, that's I remember amazing. that. Yep. Yeah, the two Nick Cave. There are two Nick Cave songs in the movie. The the king or something like that. Yeah, the king. That piece of music when I watched the Snyder cut was new to me because he he had changed that song. You mean the one when Lois walks up to the monument? Or no, the, the one or where the pier. The pier. Oh. But yeah, the monument was new too. That that was always score. Yeah, there was Zach does this thing where he kind of asks an internal question out loud, even though he doesn't he thinks out loud, let's put it that way. And he said, Do you think it's too weird having two Nick Cave songs in the movie? And I'm like, No, it's fine. They're great. And I think they're both really perfect because one has the lyrics in it. They told us our heroes would never die, but they did which is perfect as she's walking up to the monument. And then the, uh, I think the one for, it looks to me like the, the cut and the visual effects are timed to that Nick Cave song with the crashing of the waves are kind of happening at the different crescendos of the song. And anyway, I, I love both of them where they're placed. For any of you, when you are recutting, especially for time, do you strip the music out? Because I find that oftentimes if I'm trying to edit something that music's already placed, then the music is keeping me from making edits that I should probably be making. 100%. I totally agree. And, and, and more, more and more in, in my career, I do that. And I take, I take music out when I'm doing exactly what you're saying because it does trick you. Music says, see, this works. See, it should be, it should be this time. But once you take the music out, you realize, oh, it doesn't need to be this. You know, we can, we can do this. And you can, you can really, really take a lot of time. I'm, there, there's times where if, if it's a montage, for instance, it's just, you have to turn the music back on or you don't have, you know, if, if, if you're trying to lose time to trim and make things more economical, yeah, you, you would turn it off. But having montages without music are tricky. What about sound? Uh, Dodie or either one of you, any, any three of you, do you sometimes have to listen to, to a scene on mute because the sound can also, like the sound effects can also trick you? I regularly use my mute buttons for all aspects of the picture. I'll do turn the picture off and just work on the dialogue. I'll turn this, the music off. I don't necessarily take it out, but I mute it. And then I mute, I'll mute sound and sound effects too. If I haven't had time to finesse them, who wants a cut in the, in the middle of, you know, a decay of a gunshot. I mean, that can be confusing, for example. To me, I evaluate what is driving the scene and then I work on that and then and I fix all the other elements around it because I like to work with straight cuts through all the channels and then fix. And then there was the same thing true for sound effects. We talked about score that was, you know, that you're able to have score from all these great uh, other DC movies is also that true with sound effects that you've got this great, I'm assuming you guys had a fantastic toolbox of sound effects we what i started working with was so well tricked out with sound effects because of all the work that david and his team had done way back in 2016-17 so i would normally be digging into that but i didn't have have to and i didn't have time to and carlos didn't either frankly so mostly we were fixing what we already had and i don't know where was it who was it that was the assistant who did all of that work or Warren, a lot of that work? Warren. 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 Warren, Warren. Yeah, yeah. And what his library is, is it must be amazing. Or if he might've gotten some things from Scott Hecker, the sound supervisor. 
Yeah, some it, was of that a, too. it was a combination of things. It was we have that it's that same sound library that I ended up taking on to Army Doty that, you know, it's like we can call up any sound effect we may need and we'll we'll have it, you know, in some iteration. We did a lot of sound work. Like we would put a bunch of stuff together for Warren and then Warren would refine it. And then he would pass it on to David and then David would do a pass. And then it was just kind of going through that way so that whenever we present any cut to the director, it's pretty, you know, it's like, it sounds good. It sounds the way that it should sound. And especially because this cut always kind of lived being played off of a quick time. We had to make sure that the sound was really kind of dialed in because those Avid tracks were the tracks. I mean, that was what we used. We ended up doing a mix of the Avid tracks at one of the mixers houses, like kind of, you know, in, in between not working on the movie, we, like he had some time. So he just did, he kind of evened out, but it was all Avid tracks the whole time. And, and it, so the, the hard part was just keeping everything online. Like Dodi was saying, just as the effects were being refined and especially in the way that Zach was working, everything was getting longer instead of shorter. It was the only movie where we, where it was like time wasn't an issue. You know, there's this beautiful scene where Alfred and Diana are, are making tea together. And it, it, you know, it it serves no other purpose than just showing that this is a full world. And as the heroes are doing their amazing things, you know, Alfred is teaching Wonder Woman how the proper way to make tea. And it's like, there's no reason for it to be there other than it's just a little bit of character. It's a little bit of fleshing out this huge world that we all live in. So little things like that, where it's like normal things that would get cut out. It's like, no, just let's, let's just leave it there. I just, I want to leave it there. Like, are you sure we could trim this up? And Zach would be like, no. Scott would give us, you know, like when we had things that wouldn't be found in a library, he would design signature elements for us, like Wonder Woman's lasso or like the mother box sounds or Mm. some of the sounds for dark side. So we would incorporate those into our avid tracks. And so at a certain point, it became really collaborative with, with Scott. I've talked to a lot of people who say that Oftentimes with an edit, if you cut out 10 minutes, it makes the movie seem longer. Can you address like, and Dodie, of course, any any of you guys could talk about that, but how is it that cutting time from a movie makes it seem longer? I feel like it's like Carlos's idea with tea, right? You want those scenes. If a story doesn't work and if you've cut essential elements out so that you're not involved in the story, you're not involved in the characters anymore, it becomes uninvolving it becomes boring and not engaging. And so the experience you have, you're more aware of time. You you, you haven't lost yourself in the story. I I, I rewatched recently Dances with Wolves, which is about a three hour movie that flies. It's so engrossing and it doesn't seem like three hours at all. I've seen movies that are two hours that seem forever for that very reason, I think. I think it's it's emotional engagement and if you take out all of the character beats, which are not necessarily narratively driven, then you just have a series of events strung together. And exactly what David said, you can't, you're not invested. I did want to say something about the tea scene though, because I've read a lot of the reviews and most of the reviews, if there's anything negative to say about Zack Snyder's Justice League is that it's too long. But this one critic said, but I love that scene with Alfred and Diana making tea. And I just, well, yeah, okay, great. So it's too long, but you, I mean, your criticism is too long, but you love that. 
And clearly, if the film were being cut down with the question of length in mind, that, that scene would have gone. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, no question about it. It was not in the cut that I received from Carlos. And it's true. Our sound guy said he's never worked on a film. He, he remarked he never has worked on a film where every time he gets the reel, the reels are longer. <laughs> And they were. And then also VFX as they came in, every VFX as it came in, we extended the tails, heads and tails of every VFX as far as we could possibly go. Because this happens, you don't know what it's going to be. And they they work into the handles and the handles look good. And there they go. They're in the movie. I wanted to talk about pace and rhythm. And I loved the bank scene with Wonder Woman where she saves the schoolgirls from the machine gun fire the pacing of it the speed it sped up it slowed down it held it rushed it felt like a piece of music to me can you talk to me about cutting a scene like that and how you're guided to have it have dynamics if you if you look at 300 ramping is one of his signature styles and so i I knew that when i first started working with him and he'll shoot a lot of action scenes is super, super high speed camera so that you can slow down and then speed back up to 24 frames. And the initial cuts of the scene where we were dealing with not having any visual effects at all, I would just use what I could s- storytelling wise to kind of do those ramps. And I knew which, which moments he had in his mind. And I would choose some moments that I had in my mind and we would come together and say, yeah, this is a great moment for ramping. This is, you know, we, we, we had done this a lot on the, on the second 300 t- together. And, and so we had a kind of language, but we didn't have the visual effects. And so, oh, and, and music also was a thing because th- th- there were moments where it was almost like a music video it was cut to the song. And so that would like inspire us sometimes. But once the visual effects came, they realized that Wonder Woman's speed had to be looked at again in a different way because they were doing the real visual effects. Yeah, that is one of the areas where we reworked it most, but really mostly not in the cutting pattern at all. There were the whole entire cut uh, actually is almost frame for frame. The cut that I received starting from when the van pulls up, I mean, Really, I think I trimmed three shots in there of the baddies coming into the courthouse. And then it was adding some things back. We added back more attention with the guys after Wonder Woman blows up the, the suitcase or the suitcase blows up up in the air. And then the pace of her movement was accelerated and we wanted her to feel more uh, like she just moves through air very fast, moves from one spot to another very fast. And that was all fleshed out back and forth between me, uh, Zach and, and DJ. It was a lot of, it was just like puzzle pieces, moving, moving, moving slightly, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there. And and then we finally netted it out. Right. You're talking about like adjusting these little things by small, minute amounts. And of course, back in the film days, you would not have made you would have made a cut and kept it probably right talk to me about the difference between cutting now and cutting when you were cutting on film that kind of revision stuff that happens now that probably you would avoid in the old days oh my god that's a huge conversation yeah huge. i'm sorry (laughs) well i don't know how we would do speed ups wonder woman speed ups it would be a lot of (laughs) a lot of single frames and envelopes yeah, <laughs> and a, a lot, lot of splices of, lot of going dudes. through a projector, and then like, please, 
can we just give this to Weta or who's ever going to do it? And a lot of grease pencil marks. But even if you had the speeds, right, it sounds like you're still trying to trim things back and forth, make small trims that were making a difference. I feel like that's not something that would have been possible. You know, you would have been getting clatter through the projector and you would have had lost frames. And- Do we try- I, can't, I can't imagine doing it, <laughs> frankly. I mean, if this, some of this uh, material shot 500 frames a second, I mean, how are you going to do that? Uh, someone literally asked me the other day, do, do I like nonlinear better than film? And of course, you have to ask two questions. The look of film, are you talking about the look of film of a finished product? Or are you talking about hand, handling film and, and cutting film that way? One, I think that the look of film does have, there's a nostalgia and a loveliness to it that's very warm and Zach has been doggedly working on that with Army of the Dead. We, he was using his own lenses and we got a very filmic look with shooting digitally because of his he, he gets his old lenses refitted. And that's really beautiful. But the actual handling is just because of the way these stories, the bigger the movie, et cetera, is, are told, nonlinear is absolutely preferable. There's no question about it. I mean, I think I, you know, when people ask me what was the best thing about film that you miss, my my answer is, is the mentorship, Mm. which is the following in the days of film, um, an editor needed to have an assistant with her or him almost at all times. That's how I learned from Claire Simpson, who had learned from Dee Dee. So Dee Dee Allen's knowledge gets passed to Claire Simpson, who's her first assistant, who's opening a line script for her and trying to think of the next move that she's going to make and opening that trim box and taking off the trim pad and throwing it into the cutter moviola and trying to be on top. That process is now was later passed on to me when I was her first assistant on platoon. And so that, that sort of mentorship is lost is, is, is very hard to get now because editors don't need this. And so opportunity for apprenticing is different. Or Dodie, you went through that same apprenticeship as well. Yes, my apprenticeship was in a different way because I really, I worked for only a few years as an assistant and not with any editors that were as much in need or not need is not the right word, but they didn't keep me in the room with them. But the, the one who is an exception to that was Carol Littleton. And I wasn't necessarily in the room with her, but when she would cut a scene, she would call me and the other assistants into her room and show us the scene like, hey, what do you think? And we would talk about it and any questions that we had, she would answer very uh, astutely. And sometimes it would be, oh, I hadn't thought of that. I'm going to look at that. But then when I started doing sound and particularly cutting dialogue, both Foley and dialogue, I was examining the scenes because we would reprint the audio and rebuild the dialogue track. And so I was seeing where the editor had like tightened things up or opened things up to create different rhythms and beats. And also looking at Foley, just like kind of the rhythm of how the scenes were flowing. And I attribute that to really how I feel like I learned my craft. And by the way, in the mentorship department, I do often call the assistant into the room and say, will you have a look at this? Can I move on? (laughs) Because sometimes when you're cutting during dailies, you just have to get through the material to know that you have the scene. 
and then you know you'll go back and refine later but uh, and because so many films now the amount the volume of material that comes in for any given scene you really have to work in a, in a different kind of way I think and I've had days of dailies sometimes as much as 10 hours of dailies for one scene and then how are you going to organize that and figure out even what the cutting pattern is you, it's it's nearly impossible to sit down and spend 10 hours watching the dailies of that day. It's one thing to have to, to, to invite your crew in and get feedback. It's, it's, it's another thing to have to have somebody there for 10 hours a day in the old film days, you know, side where, by side. Yeah. Where you just had to. And, and I think that's the, that, that that's what I'm worried is, is lost now, you know, unless there's somebody who's with, with us all the time and seeing everything that we do. I have so many questions, but I want to be completely respectful. I thank you all so much for um, spending an hour and a little bit of time with me and enjoy the rest of your day and, uh, and the projects you get to work on. Thank you. Thank you, too. And I also want to tell you, Dodie and Carlos, that your work on the movie is it was wonderful to see. When I saw surprises that I things I hadn't seen before, it was wonderful. And, and the last scene was, was great because it hadn't been shot yet. And suddenly I wasn't like an editor looking at a different cut of movie I worked on. I was like a little kid watching a superhero movie and it was wonderful. Well, that's, that's great, David. You know, I've said it many times. I, I feel like I was standing on the shoulders of two giants, you and Carlos. So uh, it's really been a pleasure working, working on that material. So thank you. That's it for Out of the Cup this week. Thanks for listening. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for nearly 300 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors, for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guests, David Brenner, ACE, Dodie Dorn, ACE, and Carlos Castillon. Also, thanks to Dylan Giovanetto for editing today's podcast using Adobe Audition. And thanks to our sponsors for making this podcast possible, Evercast and Frame.io. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hullfish. I hope you subscribe to this podcast and give it a review, please. And finally, be sure to share them with a filmmaking or film-loving friend. <laughs>